Good, mer- <clears throat> good morning and Merry Christmas. Um, I have a, a thank you card here. Thank you, Lakewood, for supporting the Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. And uh, we have a bunch of signatures here. And this is a thank you card that I was lucky and privileged to receive. But really, uh, it's a card to us as a congregation. It's an important work. Uh, It's the natural overflow of our life that we would seek to love and serve our community and uh, a ministry as impactful as this one. So thank you. I'd ask that you be in prayer for our church staff. Now, you don't know this, but they have the difficult task of having to deal with a short, funny-looking guy with a big nose every week. So, in light of the difficulty of them having to serve with me, we are giving the staff the day off tomorrow because of, we say Christmas, but really, they're getting a day off from me. So, if you try to call the office tomorrow... No one's going to answer, and that's okay. You just call back the next day, and uh, just to keep us aware, our offices will be closed tomorrow. Well, it's been Christian tradition, really, for roughly almost 1,700 years now to celebrate the birth of Jesus on the winter solstice. We know he likely wasn't born on December 25th, and throughout centuries, and even still today, Around December 25th, there have been pagan worship practices celebrating false gods, deities, and cultural traditions. And in an individualistic age, it's actually one of the few times in the year where most everyone is eager to greet one another with a a warm greeting, share a gift, sing a song, and spend time with people, like actually like in person. And if you are someone considering Christianity, or you have been a faithful follower of Christ for years, you may wonder what makes the Christian holiday of the birth of Christ any different from the rest. Well, the difference is what we've been considering through the month of December. The freedom, the freedom in Christmas. That's what makes the Christian holiday different. Freedom. In Christmas. The Christian tradition doesn't simply center itself on family and gifts and trees and big piles of cookies, although those are all very heavenly things. No, at the core, our celebration is the biblical proclamation that freedom, forgiveness, eternal life, a changed heart, and a life of knowing God intimately. It has been made possible by the birth of the God-man, Jesus. I'll ask that you grab a copy of the Scriptures, please, and turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 16 through 25, and we continue this series through the book of Galatians, declaring with Paul that Jesus is enough. In recent weeks, we've been discussing, as we said, the freedom that Christmas truly offers. Freedom. Freedom from a life of slavery and sin. Freedom in fulfilled promises from long ago. Freedom to run. To run this life of faith and love God and our neighbor. Well, it's this last freedom that Paul expounds on more here in our passage. The freedom to love. 
And the main, idea, uh, the main idea this morning is this. Jesus is enough because his spirit leads me to love. And that very naturally leads us to this question. Okay. How do I love my neighbor? And that's what Paul was addressing last week in our passage. Read again with me in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Okay, so I'm to love and not to bite. That sounds easy enough. At least in my best moment, it does. And really, this is the issue. When our spirits, when our circumstances, and the people around us are functioning as we prefer, oh yeah, I can love. It's easy to love and not to bite. But what about in my worst moments? What about in your worst moments? When our spirits, our circumstances, and the people around us, well, what about when the driver in front of me doesn't know when to go on a four-way stop? I don't feel very loving in that moment. What about when I am fueled by my own anger, pride, lust, and greed? What about when my health and my finances are suffering? Am I loving or biting? What about when my preferences aren't met? Well, is it easy to love in that moment or do I bite? What about when the circumstances of life are jarring and I don't feel loved? <laughs> and I don't feel like loving. Well, what then? To love and not to bite. That is a difficulty. Even for Christians who've been given new hearts in Christ. Well, my friends, in this passage, Paul, Paul is aware. Paul is aware of this difficulty of the human condition. And Paul is also aware that human effort, it not only lacks the ability to please God, but human effort lacks the power to do what we want to do. A freedom is needed. A rescue is required. A new heart is the prerequisite to loving and not biting. So the question still is in our passage this. How do I love my neighbor? How do I do it? Well, I think Paul answers it in our passage. First, Paul considers the reality of the internal battles that we have. Would you read with me verses 16 through 18? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other 
to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the reality of the internal battle that we see in these verses, uh, there, there's two verses that, or two words rather, that kind of pop out in, in these verses. The first word is walk. Did you see that in the beginning of verse 16? Walk by the Spirit. Now, this is an interesting word, walk, in verse 16. Walking throughout the scriptures doesn't necessarily refer to putting one front, uh, foot in front of the other and taking a stroll, maybe through the masses at Walmart. That's not what he's saying. Walking time and time again, it refers to the life that you and I live. What is the pattern of our life? Where do our choices and steps take us? What is our walk? Our English translations, they, they rob us a little bit in this verse. There's a tone and a command when he says walk that we kind of miss in English here. It's veiled. You could translate it this way. Paul says, but, but I say, I say to you, I command you. I remind you, I exhort you, I encourage you to keep walking continually by the Spirit. So, you see, it's not enough simply that we walked at one time in our life. Yeah, I, I, I did that. No, the, the, the reality is that we're to continue it. And we are to trade in biting and devouring for loving and serving, not just once or when it's convenient. But Paul says, keep doing this. Continually, keep walking, endure, keep going in obeying, trusting, relying, depending on and walking by the control of the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need this reminder. Your, your pastor needs this reminder. You, you need this reminder. The reality of an eternal battles on our heart reveals that I need someone, you need someone to come alongside you and to encourage us to press on in the Christian life. Keep walking. It reminds me that faithful followers of Christ, they have a way. They have a series of steps, a running in life that is marked by continual running, loving, serving, affection, and care for the people around them. That's a faithful follower of Christ. And, well, people, let's be honest, people are people. Are people. And that's not always easy because people are needy and sometimes selfish or my biggest pet peeve. They talk over you in conversation. Why do people do that? So people aren't always the easiest to love. And Paul comes in and he says, hey, in contrast to biting and devouring, in contrast to relying on your human effort to please God, in contrast to your reliance on following a list, a list of rules and laws that change your outward behavior, in contrast to all that, continue. Walk. Cling to Christ, His Spirit. Follow Him. Live for Him. Walk with Him. 
Well, the reality of an internal battle on our heart doesn't, we don't just see this word walk, but this word was repeated, desires, in verse 16 and 17. You see, in the life of a faithful follower, there are, there are competing, competing desires. Verse 16 makes this promise. If you continually walk and are led by the Spirit, you will not gratify, that's an old word, but you will not delight in the desires of the flesh. To make it even more clear, Paul reveals in the next verse the reality of the internal battle and conflicting desires in the life of the Christian. Look at verse 17 again. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Yes! Thank you, Paul. Thank you for admitting what too many proud Christians, including myself, won't admit. And I guess we're not just proud, but we're afraid to admit. We have competing desires. We have an imperfect obedience. We have an internal war on our hearts, on the battleground of our hearts each day. So one of the best things that you and I can do as we read our Bibles, ask this question. Why? Why is what I'm reading here in this verse, in this passage, why is this here? That's a great question as we read our Bible. Why would Paul choose in the midst of declaring throughout this whole letter, declaring Jesus is enough? In the midst of declaring that the only thing that earns God's favor, it's not your human work and effort, but it's the finished work of Jesus. Paul's been declaring that those who trust in Christ, they are forgiven redeemed, rescued, changed, their promised eternity. He reminds us, faithful followers, that we're also declared righteous. That is, they're not righteous in and of themselves. They're declared, they're covered by righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. When the Father looks down at you, Christian, He sees righteousness. He sees a Son. And he's pleased. But there is, as we see in this passage, a dual reality. We are declared righteous. We have forgiveness and the smile of God upon us. But Paul here reminds us that we still live in this world. We still live this life that God has given us. We have, as verse 17 says, desires of the Spirit of God that he's given us. And the desires of the flesh. The desires of our natural mind and our natural bent. The desires of this world. The the desires of human effort and law. So the reality of our internal battle could look like this. And it's not just a personal confession. I know I'm not the only one here. Two desires. A confliction. A battle. I desire to be like Jesus. And at times I desire to live apart from him. Oh, I desire to live in holiness. And I desire to live like the world around me. I desire to love people around me. And I desire to rip their heads off. I desire to read and grow in God's word. And sometimes on a Monday morning I desire to skip it. 
I desire, desire to have a purity in mind and thoughts and action. But I desire to often chase lust, greed, and pride. Well, I have a desire to be content in the life that God has given me. And I desire and covet what other people have. I desire to be gracious and loving to my neighbor. And I desire for all Wisconsin teams to lose. I'm a conflicted man. We are a conflicted people. Now, before you come down hard on yourself or you come down hard on the honest Christians around you, can I remind you that this conflict in your heart is likely the very evidence that you belong to Christ. You see, if you have a heart that sincerely desires to live for God and by His Spirit, and you at the same time wrestle with temptation and sin, you are a Christian. But in contrast, if you see no conflict, if your only desire is for yourself in this world, you are not a faithful follower of Christ. Praise God for this conflict. Praise God that he's put in you a new heart and that you long for him to turn from flesh and to walk by the Spirit. May we keep depending on him to enable us to walk and to desire him continually. But in answering this question, how do I love my neighbor? Well, Paul, he doesn't just recognize that there's an internal battle going on. Next, we see in our verses, he points to the works of the flesh. Would you read with me, please, verses 19 through 21? Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What are the evidences of a, of a life of slavery? A life dependent on law and human effort. A life that bites and devours and fails to love. These 15 vices, they're not exhaustive. We did read in verse 21, Paul says, and things like these. But this list is what Paul calls in Ephesians 5, the unfruitful works of darkness. I think one can make the argument that Paul uses this list. Again, why is this here? I think Paul uses this list to accomplish two things in the context of not just our passage, but the book as a whole. First, Paul shares this list to remind the Galatian believers and, and to remind us at Lakewood Church, to remind us that our biting and devouring are evident works of the flesh. They affect our community. All of the sins in this list, all of them, 
are not merely individual. And it seems they're kind of broken in four categories. There's sexual, religious, social, sins of excess, and they all have direct implication on the one who chooses to engage in them, but then also on the people around them. Your integrity, your walk, your choosing of a vice, you're giving yourself over to the dark fruits of the flesh. They have implication, not just on your life, but the people around you. Parents, Proverbs 20 says, your integrity has direct connection to the blessing of your children. See, even our secret sins affect the ones around us. You may not immediately make the connection between biting and devouring and this long list of unfruitful works that should not, should not mark us. But here's how one commentator uh, referenced this verse. To live in the unloving and socially vicious ways that Paul has just described, to live in those ways reveals that one has not received the Spirit, is not God's child and will not inherit God's kingdom. Those are stinging words. Because what they force me to consider, what they force all of us to consider this morning is this. Is Jesus enough? Have I truly experienced the freedom of Christmas that Paul's been proclaiming to these Galatians? Am I truly a child or am I walking continually biting and devouring the people around me? Am I marked by a life that gives itself over to a list of harmful things? That doesn't just harm me, it harms the people I love. Well, the second thing, yeah, there is uh, this list here and it does affect our community, but I think he also gives this list to accomplish another purpose. And that's to give us a healthy fear. A healthy fear for faithful followers of Christ. Now, you are aware of this. There are unhealthy fears and healthy fears. Uh, Unhealthy fear may be a basketball team full of toddlers. You don't have to be afraid of them. We'll smoke them. We'd beat them. But a healthy fear might be that team, that basketball team of toddlers running towards the train tracks. There are unhealthy fears and healthy fears. Now that's a silly example, but Paul offers a warning. This list is a warning as a means of grace to you and I. There's an appropriate fear that we should have as we look at our life and we see our thoughts and our choices and the words that are contrary to God's character and word. Our conduct, our fruit, it's a product of the heart that we have. And a heart bent towards viciousness and sin toward the community around you, that has eternal consequence, Paul says. Namely, an eternity apart from him. So as you look at this list, as, as I look at this list, do any of these things mark your life? 
There was an old monk reformer named Martin Luther who said something. Look at the end of verse 21 again. It says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, here's what that old monk had to say regarding that part of the verse. This is a very and terrible saying, but yet very necessary against false Christians and careless hypocrites who boast of the gospel, who boast of faith in the Spirit, and yet they perform works of the flesh. Therefore, Luther says, it was most needful that this awful sentence should be pronounced, that some of them, some of us, being terrified, may begin to fight against the works of the flesh by the Spirit, that they would be changed. This list of vices and vices and, and vicious sins is, is a grace to you and I because it may scare some of us to stop biting and devouring and to live in loving and gracious ways. May God use this list of vices as a warning to soften our hearts, my friends. And that the actions of our flesh, our sinful nature, our human bent, they would be changed from darkness to light. Well, lastly, we see that in this question, again, what's the question? How do I love my neighbor? How do I do it? Okay, there's this internal battle going on between the desires of the flesh and the spirit. There's this list of the works of the flesh I'm, I'm to avoid that aren't true are supposed to be true of my life. But Paul also points us to uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit. How do you love your neighbor? The fruit of the Spirit. Read verses 22 through 26 with me, please. But, in contrast, but. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified. They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Provoking one another, envying one another. How do I love my neighbor? The fruits of the Spirit. In contrast to biting, in contrast to socially vicious sins that mark those whose fruit is darkness, we are to love our neighbor by being controlled, directed, guided, and enabled by the Spirit of God. The fruit of that kind of life fulfills the law of God and truly loves those around you. In sharing a life as a faithful follower, a life full of fruit, these verses, uh, and really that is the battle again, River, uh, I want to have a life that produces fruit versus a life that is just marked by the flesh. It's clear that Paul doesn't give a list of feelings that we should attain. That's not what he's doing. 
but rather actions that we should take with one another. A product of a life lived for God, it certainly has feelings of love and joy and peace and patience. That is true. But that's not what Paul's saying here. That's not his argument. He's answering the question, how do I love my neighbor? What does the Christian life look like? Not in a vacuum, but tomorrow morning on Monday when I have to deal with people. How do I love my neighbor then? Well, there's a lot we can say, but I want to focus on two aspects Paul keys in here in our verses. First, how do I love my neighbor? The fruit of the Spirit. Well, okay, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul points to the work of God. The work of God. Again, these fruits of the Spirit, they're not suggestions. They're not feelings or what you do to manufacture something in your life. They are the overflow of a relationship with God. They are what He produces in your life as you walk by the Spirit. And there is no law for this. Here's how one commentator explained the end of verse 23. A law may prescribe certain forms of conduct and prohibit others. But but love, joy, peace, and the rest cannot be legally enforced. A vine does not produce grapes by act of Congress. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's demand, but it is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as the result of what He has done in and by Christ. Loving your neighbor, the fruit of the Spirit, that's the work of God. I love what we quoted A vine does not produce grapes by act of Congress. Yeah, uh, you know how you and I know that? You cannot legislate morality. And parents, you've learned that real quick. Some of you may have had this experience yesterday. Christmas, presents, kids full of sugar, bad combination. And there's biting and devouring and there's confusion. Who is this gift present for? There's no name on it. And then there's a tuggle, a war. Then it's settled. They find out who it is. But then the parent comes along and says, well, you need to reconcile. Tell your brother and sister you're sorry. I'm sorry. No, say it like you mean it. I'm sorry. Tell them you love them. I love you. You can't legislate it. You can't force it. You can try. It's not going to happen, parents. You can't manufacture love, joy, peace, patience, all the rest. You can't. Read verse 24 again. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified. They have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul reminds us that faithful followers of Christ, they've experienced a death. 
We spent an extended time on this in Galatians 2.20, where Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The work of God. The fruit of the Spirit is the work of God. Paul is reminding these Galatian believers, he's reminding us, that our old self has died, dead, gone. And we've been given a new heart and a new life because Christ now resides in us. And the work of God will manifest itself in my life. Fruit! Fruit! Specifically, fruit in how I love the people around me. So how might this fruit look that we read in our list here? How might it look tomorrow morning? Well, I will genuinely love. That's a fruit of the Spirit we read. I will genuinely love and care for my neighbor, made in God's image. I will have joy, not just in serving people, but I will have joy, the fruit of the Spirit of joy, not just in serving them, but I will have joy for who they are. I think we can grow in that one. Having joy in how God has wired and designed the person in front of you. Yeah, quirks and all. I will have peace in my heart towards others as I live alongside other flawed humans. I will be patient. That's a fruit of the Spirit. I will be patient with children in my home who are too loud. And I will have patience even with my fellow congregants and church members. It's a fruit of the Spirit. I will show kindness to those who aren't kind to me. I will display goodness in my actions before my community. I will be faithful. Faithful in my words, thoughts, actions, and relationships. It's the work of God. That's the fruit of the Spirit. I will be gentle. I will be gentle with the broken and confused. I will show self-control at the four-way stop. I will show self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. I'll show self-control, maybe with those who are foolish. We don't muster these things up. God produces them in us as we walk by the Spirit, the work of God. Well, walking by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, yes, it is a work of God. That is true. But also, Paul shows us in these verses that it's not just the work of God that is the fruit of the Spirit, but there, there's a call, a call on us. Look again at verses 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The life of a faithful follower of Christ, it is not a passive one. 
and far too many of us are passive. Yes, we are dependent on God and His Spirit. Yes, we need the necessary heart work that only God can do. Yes, we cannot naturally seek God. We cannot naturally love our neighbor or fight against fleshly human desires to bite and devour to have a life marked by the sins and vices that we read. Okay, naturally, yes, I can't do any of those things. Yes, that is all true. But Paul here reminds us that there is a cooperation that happens in the Christian life. In our former life, our wills were conditioned and controlled by sin. But now, in Christ, in a new life, our wills are conditioned and controlled by the Spirit as we're commanded to keep in step, to take action, to live in accord with the gospel and have unity in our earthly relationships with one another. One translation puts verse 25 this way. If the Spirit is the source of our life, let the Spirit also direct our course. How do I love my neighbor? How do I love and not bite? How do I not become conceited and provoke and envy? Intentionality. I intentionally walk in a way that is directed by the Spirit. Now, it's this time of year that we start looking in the mirror. Uh, there's a reason for a long time there weren't mirrors in houses. Some of us don't like what we see when we look in the mirror. Thanksgiving has come and gone, Christmas season. Well, we stretch it to last a whole month. It's cold outside, New Year's coming. Well, there's no reason to be too intense, not right now at least. I look in the mirror and I say, what are these love handles doing here? Well, to be quite frank, I haven't cared much about it. I've had other priorities. I haven't put the effort in. I had pecan pie on my birthday this week. I think I deserve that. So, can I say, brothers and sisters, that in a similar way, in a similar way, should we be surprised? Yeah, there are times we neglect our physical selves, but should we be surprised that when we neglect the New Testament's calling on our life, that we're spiritually dry, frustrated, confused, doubting, and unhealthy? You know, some of the darkest times in my Christian life, I can look back and I go, oh, you know, I wonder why it was so dark. <laughs> and oftentimes, it's me, it's Matt neglecting the call of God on my life. I'm not walking with intentionality. I'm not seeking to walk by His Spirit. Paul comes in and he tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. To put yourselves in positions to see the glory of Christ and be changed. Some of you are wondering, how can I be changed? How do I love my neighbor? How do I produce the Spirit of God and, and, and works that please God in my life? Well, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, that you and I are changed and transformed as we behold and gaze on the glory of Jesus. 
How often do we do that? Are we keeping in step? Are we putting ourselves in positions to see the beauty and the glory of Christ and be changed by it? Well, I guess I would admit, and I know I'm not the only one, that in seasons of sin, in seasons of dryness, I've stopped beholding. I've neglected to look. I've neglected to put myself in a position to see Christ. So what does that look like? Well, can I remind us, brothers and sisters, that this is not the matrix. We don't simply upload information and now we know Kung Fu. The Christian life is one, not of data collection, but of intimacy and a personal relationship with Christ. We don't behold a statue or a painting. We behold a person. So to behold a person, we should read our Bibles. And listen, that can be hard sometimes. You're in Leviticus and you're just grinding. You're like, man. And, you know, we, we pick on Leviticus a little bit, but I feel the same way just reading the gospel sometimes. And that, that old monk, Luther, he would, he would often say, read till your heart is warmed. Read until you see something of Christ and behold him. So we read not just to collect data, but to behold, to see a person, to see his beauty, to be changed by it. Well, how else do we put our position, ourselves in a position to behold Jesus? Yes, we read, but we should pray. We should depend upon him, confess sin to him. You know what's really important about putting yourselves in a position to see the glory of Christ and be changed? Living within a community. You want to know what's glorious? Seeing someone around you changed continually by Christ. But if you're not in community, if you neglect community and even membership of a church, you're robbing yourself from seeing Christ, Christ displayed in his people. So read, pray, be in community, get baptized, take communion. All these things are a means of grace, by God's grace. As we act on these simple things, we will see the glory of Jesus. We will love him will be changed by him, and he will produce the fruit of the Spirit, and will love our neighbor. Here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Here's the good news. If you are a faithful follower of Christ, this passage is already true of you. The desires of the flesh, you are turning from them. The desires of the Spirit, you are growing in them. Do you do it perfectly? No. And we can all see that, by the way. But by God's grace, you are a people being changed, beholding the glory of Jesus, and loving your neighbor. You are growing in the desires for the Spirit. God help us to grow in them more this week. Jesus is enough.
because he leads us faithfully. He leads us to love one another. Would you pray with me? I'm going to read an old Puritan prayer in closing. God, make me willing to be saved in his way, perceiving nothing in myself but all in Jesus. God, help me not only receive him but to walk in him, to depend upon him, to commune with him, to be conformed to him, to follow him. Imperfect, but still pressing forward. Not complaining of labor, but valuing rest. Not murmuring under trials, but thankful for my state. O God, give us that faith which is the means of salvation and the principle and medium of all godliness. O God, may we be saved by grace through faith. May we live by faith, feel the joy of faith. And God, would we do the work of faith? Would you help us to love our neighbor? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.